Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. So, Band of Brothers, week three. Um, And this week, we're going to look at Matthew, also known as Levi in some of the Gospels. So, year of adventure, this is is where uh, we're still on that. Band of Brothers, looking at the disciples of Jesus um, and the adventure he had in his being called by Jesus and following Jesus. So this is a scripture about when Matthew was called to follow Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The same story is found in two of the other Gospels. Subtle differences, which we'll look at later, in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. And both Luke and Mark... Uh, call Matthew Levi when he's first called. But later in the Gospels, when there's a list of all the disciples, they call him Matthew. So we don't exactly know when his name changed, but there is an idea that possibly Jesus gave him the name Matthew, which actually means gift of God. So he was originally called Levi, but Jesus, he renamed Peter, Simon, and became Peter, and he may have given Matthew the name Matthew, who was originally called Levi. So look at his family background. Mark 2 um, calls him the son of Alphaeus, and in Mark 3, James, which there was two Jameses, um, James and John, we heard about the other, on the first week, I think, there was another James, but they called him James the Elder, he was brother of John, and James the Younger, and in Mark um, 3, it says James was the son of Alphaeus as well, so we assume, but we don't know, that they were brothers, or they both had fathers called Alphaeus. It's interesting that what Gavin Calvert spoke on a few weeks ago, and he said about the disciples being basically a youth group. Now, he didn't explain that, but, but um, it is a speculation. You can Google it and you can find out. We don't know it for certain. We don't know what age they were, but there is pretty you know, good evidence that the most of the disciples were age 20 or under. So being interested, I just thought I'd give you a little bit of the background why that is. Firstly... Peter is the only disciple being named, uh, being named as married. And men were usually married in that age by about age 18 or 20. So that's some evidence. We know Peter was married. We don't know about the others. There's a story where Peter and Jesus had to pay tax. And they, Jesus got the tax out of the mouth of a fish. Now, only people who were 20 or over had to pay tax. Now, we know Jesus was about 30. We assume Peter was older also because he was married. So that's some evidence. Um, we also know John lived until AD 96. That's 66 years after Jesus died on the cross. So he must have been quite young when he was called to have lived that long in those, those days. Their work, they started work very young, about age 12, in parallel with their education. Sorry, age 5, I think, but, but in parallel with their education. So it's quite possible that they were all working, even though they were young by today's standards, uh, and in a trade like fishing. And Matthew, we'll hear what trade he was in. It is possible, though, that Matthew was also a bit older because he would appear to be more educated than most of the other disciples. He was a tax collector. He possibly, he didn't need money. He had his own money to pay the temple tax. He didn't need it out of the mouth of a fish. So let's say a little bit about his work. 
He was a tax collector. That means he was working for the enemy. He was working for the occupying power, which is the Romans. He would have had to have kept detailed records and written transactions. He probably knew um, Hebrew as a Jew. He would need to know Aramaic and Greek and po- um, to speak to the population, because that's what they spoke. He probably needed to know Latin as well to, dem- to speak to the Roman, his Roman bosses. So he would have had to be good with numbers and a pen. Um, he may have been more wealthy than some of the other disciples, possibly, quite possibly, through questionable means. And we'll look at that a little bit later. Okay, so that's what we know he was. Um, let's look at his mention in the Bible. Now, some of the people speaking have got to speak about two or three disciples. I've only got to speak about one. Actually, there's so little written about Matthew in the Bible. But we do believe he wrote a whole gospel. We'll come to that in a minute. So there's very little actually about him. He's only mentioned twice in his own gospel. Firstly, when he was called, and secondly, in this list of disciples. Um, he's also mentioned in the other gospels I mentioned in the same way, twice. And he's mentioned in the book of Acts in a list of disciples. That's all we know about him. Um, We also know, in that bit I just read at the beginning, that after he was called, he held a banquet for Jesus, and his disciples and the house was filled with a crowd of other tax collectors and undesirables. That is all we know about him. Um, There's no record of any conversations with Jesus or anybody, um, or the other disciples. There's no record of what he did, apart from this one banquet he held at the start. Um, But despite all that, we can know or surmise quite a lot more about Matthew because of the job he did before he was called and because he wrote an important chunk of the Bible. So let's look at that, his contribution to the Bible. So he wrote the first gospel in the Bible, the gospel of Matthew. Um, It's the longest gospel in terms of chapters. There's 28 chapters. It's not the longest in terms of words. That's Luke, apparently. You can Google that yourself. Um, How do we know Matthew wrote it? Well, it says the Gospel of Matthew in all the Bibles you've seen, but actually that's not part of the original text. And he never in the Gospel names himself as the author. Um, But the earliest church onwards believed this was the Gospel of Matthew. They called it the Gospel of Matthew. It's never been called anything else. If you do search on Wikipedia, for instance, about Matthew, you'll find some interesting things, and I don't recommend it. Um, um, There's some confusing statements. There's a lot of debate about whether Matthew actually wrote the Gospel called Matthew or whether the Matthew who wrote it was really the disciple Matthew. And if you look at external evidence, um, what other people say about it, there's confusing things by an early church father that said he wrote it in Hebrew. Um, There's a a claim that, well, it's not a claim. Bible scholars believe a lot Luke and Matthew took their source from Mark. But Mark wasn't apostle and Matthew was wasn't. And they say, well, no way would have a, a disciple who was a disciple of Jesus, an eyewitness, would have copied his stuff from someone who wasn't. But that's unjustified. Maybe what Mark wrote was correct. And, he, and you'll find that Matthew added a little bit because he knew more details than Mark did. So there, that's what you'll find on Wikipedia. We don't really believe Matthew wrote it. But if you look at the internal evidence, what's written in the gospel and in the Bible itself, there is no doubt in my mind um, And I'll just go through some of that. Firstly, if you read the gospel, he was familiar with the Jewish nation. He knew the people he was among. So he was definitely Jewish. He used Jewish scriptures. He knew them uh, like the back of his hand. He quotes the Old Testament more than any of the other gospels. Um, The language, I don't know this, but apparently the language he uses shows he was a Jew. And he knew how Jewish people spoke. 
He used numbers all over the place. I mean, there is no doubt he was a cat collector. His gospel is more full of numbers and money than any of the other gospels. Um, totally consistent with him being uh, a tax collector. I mean, the story of the, the mouth, the, fit, the tax in the fish is only in Matthew. And there's all sorts of other stories that, that are related to numbers throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's interesting that only his own gospel um, names him as Matthew in the call. All the others call him Levi. Now, if it's widely believed that they were, they were copying from Mark, then why would Matthew have changed the name? Well, because he was the one who knew it was me. Um, so that's one of the evidences that he must have wrote it. Um, it's only the, the only gospel that refers to him as Matthew the tax collector in the list of apostles, because he knew uh, it was that Matthew, it was that was me. Um, and his description of the call when Jesus called him is subtly different from that of Luke, and we'll look at that because it says something about him. Um, they all point to Matthew the disciple as being the author. We know it was written by an educated man. It's excellent Greek in the... I don't, but the people who study it say it's excellent Greek, uh, as is Luke. And Luke was a doctor, but he wasn't a disciple. Um, the gospel is factual, full of details. It has more, as I said, more quotes than any other gospel. 96, actually, quotes from the Old Testament. The next nearest is Luke, has 58 quotes from the Old Testament. He knew his scripture. Um, now, to me, as an engineer, um, I love it. And as a Bible student, I love it. It's my most favorite gospel. It's factual, it's logical. It just uh, appeals to me the way I study the Bible. It's got the Sermon on the Mount in full, in the most amazing teaching of Jesus. It's got the parables of the treasure and the pearl, which are only in the Gospel of Matthew, amazing parables. The parable of the sheep of goats, a challenging but also fascinating passage. I love the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm really glad I got given this one. Um, okay, next one. Oh, I said all that, haven't we? Um, oh, no, no, say a few more. Sorry, sorry. <clears throat> So it's primarily written to the Jews. That's what we're, the, if you do some research, they believe that, G, the, that Matthew wrote his gospel for the Jews. Um, his primary aim was to prove that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah because they didn't think he was. You know, and he was trying to show, they thought they were expecting a conquering king and they got someone who died on a cross. So it was all about proving that Jesus was the person they were expecting. There's a genealogy of, uh, at the start of the gospel of Matthew. Um, and there's one at the start of Luke. But Matthew's one starts as Abraham. The one in Luke starts at Adam, and the one in Matthew starts at Abraham because he is the legal founder of the Jewish nation. He wanted to show that, you know, Jesus came from Abraham. And the, the, people say the Bible's got errors in because the two genealogies are different. They, they come together and they go apart and they come together again. But it's fascinating that, that the genealogy in Matthew goes, ends up at Joseph, Jesus' father, except we know he wasn't really his father. He was his legal father, but we believe the Holy Spirit was his father. But Joseph uh, was, came from David, the King David, through the, through the line of uh, Solomon, who was the legal heir of David. Um, so that's really important that, that legally, to show legally, Jesus was the heir of David through the legal kingly went through Solomon. The other genealogy, which is in Luke, now Luke was a doctor, interesting this. That goes back to Adam, all the way to right to creation. It goes all the way to Joseph again. Uh, but not through Solomon, through David's other son, Nathan. And actually, and I'm not going to explain now, they believe it's not really a genealogy of Jesus, it's the genealogy of, Mary, of Joseph, it's of Mary. Now, Mary was Jesus' biological mother, wasn't he? And a doctor has a, a biological genealogy, and, a, and, a, and a, a tax account, a tax collector has the legal 
genealogy, they both point to Jesus being the true biological and legal heir of King David, which was prophesied in the Old Testament. Although it's written to the Jews, um, it also... um, he recognizes the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles. It's going beyond the Jews. Matthew has the great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel right at the end of the gospel. Um, so Matthew definitely recognized the gospel wasn't only for the Jews. Quick list. There's significant, really important you know, teaching that's only found in Matthew. The genealogy of Jesus that I mentioned, coming from Abraham through Solomon. Joseph's dream about Mary. The visit of the wise men. Herod's massacre of the innocents the escape to Egypt. These are all part of fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, which Matthew was anxious to do. The full Sermon on the Mount, it's got extra details that are not found in the one in Luke. The parables of the treasure and the pearl and the dragnet, getting the tax money out of the fish I mentioned, the parables of the wedding garment, the virgins, the talents, the sheep and the goats, all in Matthew and nowhere else. The dream of Pilate's wife is only in Matthew. The appearance of saints who had died after the crucifixion the bribing of the soldiers, that's money again, to say Jesus' body was taken, that is, uh, was stolen. Um, that's only in Matthew. And the most amazing possibility uh, is this, that as a tax collector, and again, we can't prove this, it's quite possible Matthew knew a form of shorthand. So he literally could write as fast as someone could speak. Now, given that the full Sermon on the Mount is in the Gospel of Matthew, there is actually a possibility the Sermon on the Mount is an accurate transcript. It's almost like a recording of exactly what Jesus said, the very words of Jesus, rather than just something doing it from memory. He really wrote, you know, word by word. We don't know that, but it could be, could be the case. So an amazing gospel. So let's come on to the character of Matthew. We know so little about him, so how can we see what sort of person he was? Um, we may think it's difficult, but actually what we do know is very really revealing. He was a tax collector for the Romans. He was basically regarded as the scum of the earth. Pretty much everybody thought of him that way. Maybe the Romans didn't, but everybody thought he was the scum of the earth. Um, let me, if you just go to the next 10. So I read at the beginning, I read from the NIV because I, I, uh, it was just a little bit more accurate. This is the New Living Translation, which I love. Let's read what that says in that passage. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? That is how they regarded tax collectors. So, uh, next slide, please. He was hated by the Jewish people since he was collecting their money for the enemy uh, because so many of the tax collectors were also corrupt and they took much more money than they should have. They extorted money out of the people they were taking it from. One, as I said, one of the reasons they got rich. Um, he was despised by the Jewish leaders because, again, he was working for the enemy occupier. Uh, now, when I come to tax collector, we think of HMRC today, don't we? Um, now, we may not like them, but we do respect them to some extent, don't we? Possibly we think they're a bit like traffic wardens, okay? They're, they're apparently the most despised profession. Oh, do we have any traffic wardens here? Sorry, but... Uh, But it's not like that. It's worse than that. It's almost like a combination of a collaborator or a traitor in the Second World War, working for the enemy, collaborating, combined with a a protection racketeer today, you know, extorting money out of people um, with menaces. Um, And that that is why they hated him. That's the sort of person he was. He was regarded as the lowest of the yo. He was lumped in the by with prostitutes and other sinners. He's put in the same category as Gentile and believers. 
So we may think today that Judas Iscariot was the most notorious of the 12 disciples because he betrayed Jesus. But that was later. At the time he was called by Jesus, that distinction almost certainly goes to Matthew. Um, how are we doing? Okay. I won't go on. There's another story about Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. He was a more wealthy one. He was a chief tax collector. Climbed a sycamore tree. Uh, again, Jesus called these people. People hated them, but Jesus called them, and that's something tells us something quite important. We don't know if Matthew was corrupt or he extorted more money, but we do know he's working for the Romans. Um, what we do know, because of how much people hated him, what an amazing thing it would have been meant to him to be called by Jesus. Here he was, despised and hated by everyone, and Jesus reaches out in love to him. He asks Matthew to follow him. He gives him hope. And no wonder he responds immediately. Matthew knew where he'd come from. He knew how much of a sinner he was and what he'd been called out of and rescued from. Next slide, please. So this is what I believe about Matthew. I believe this made him a very humble man. And there's real biblical evidence for this. He doesn't that he was a man of great humility who knew where he'd come from and how much Jesus had forgiven him and rescued him. He doesn't blow his own trumpet in his own gospel. He hardly mentions himself. We believe he wrote it, but he only mentions himself twice. And what he even says about himself is self-deprecating. He doesn't ever big himself up. And there's a really good example. Actually, I don't think I've got it up there. But in Luke, when he was called, Luke says, Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Left everything. Matthew just says, Levi got up and followed him. He doesn't big it up. Again, when Luke says, um, when they held the, the, the banquet, the meal after, Luke says, then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house. But Matthew just says, well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. He does not. He's, he's a humble man. Now, it's not like me, right? <laughs> when I was joking this week, my, um, my, um, our nephew's supposed to be here. Uh, he missed the bus, unfortunately. <laughs> And I said, oh, you know, he came last week, and he loved Joe here speaking. He wanted to hear, I said, don't come next week. This speaker's rubbish, okay? Now, that was false humility. I said the same thing to Joe, who had spoken last week. Uh, and she texted me back, oh, no, no, you're not rubbish. You see, because that's what I was looking for, wasn't it? You know, you're not rubbish, really. Um, that, that's false humility. Matthew's humility was genuine. And it's clearly evident in the gospel. And we'll look a little bit at more light. So now we come to the top trump card. Matthew, right? Maths language skill, 100%. Scripture knowledge, 96 for 96 quotations for the Old Testament. Facebook friends, zero. Probably minus. Minus, okay? Nobody liked him. A man of great humility. A man of great humility. And now we're going to look at what that means to us. What does it mean to us? What can we learn from Matthew? So we go to slide 15. Right, I'm going to read quickly. This is the call in um, part of the call of Matthew. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors. And we've read all that. And at the end it says, Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now we go to the next slide, Matthew's version. We see Matthew's added a bit. So it's pretty much the same, except he's just his dinner rather than a large banquet. But he adds, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Matthew added that bit in his own gospel. Something Jesus said and Luke forgot about it. So let's look at slide 17. He knew he was a miserable sinner. 
He knew he had received undeserved mercy from Jesus. He knew, he understood perhaps better than anyone what God is looking for in us. As I came in this morning, Paul said, you know, Matthew, he was a party guy, wasn't he? He threw a big party. and I hadn't, It was a great banquet. It was a massive party. When Jesus called him, he threw a party. He was so thankful. He was so overjoyed at what he'd been rescued from. And he invited all his undesirable friends to come and meet Jesus because of what Jesus had done for him. Um, I think it's a significant evidence of Matthew's humility and his real understanding of the heart of God, the fact that Jesus came for sinners and people who knew they needed him. He did not come for those who thought they were already pretty good and proud about what they did for God, those who sacrificed for God. Jesus reaches out to us today, and he helps those who know they need him. He is not helping those who think they're better than others or can manage perfectly well without him. God is also not looking for what works we do for him or what sacrifices we make for him. He is looking at our hearts and how what is in our hearts manifests ourself, manifests itself in the way we show his love to others. That is what God is looking for. He's looking at the way we show mercy and forgiveness to others, but he is also looking at the way we judge and look down on others. So let's just finish, finally now, um, well, not quite finally, a few, um, look, final scripture, at a parable, a well-known parable um, told by Jesus, found in Luke's gospel, not Matthew's, known as a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was a Jewish religious leader, and tax collectors we know about. Now, I can't prove this, of course, but I strongly suspect that when Jesus told this parable, he may have even had Matthew and maybe Zacchaeus, or it may have been before Zacchaeus, he may have had them in mind when he told this. And it may explain why the self, you know, that bigging, not bigging himself up, Matthew, didn't include it in his own gospel. So let's read this parable. Um, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said this, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. Next slide, please. Jesus showed nothing but love to the tax collectors and sinners. But the harshest, had the harshest words to say to the Pharisees. Interestingly, those very harsh words that he said to the Pharisees were recorded in great detail by Matthew. He, there was, certainly was no love lost between him and the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. They're mostly in Matthew 12 and 23, and you'll find them in some of the other Gospels. I'm going to read a few highlights just to get a flavor. Jesus said this. This is gentle, loving Jesus said this to people to the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Hard enough yet? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs. We look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but in the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? That is what Jesus said, that Matthew would make clear to get every word there. Now, who are the modern Pharisees? Presumably, we all think we're like the repentant tax collector and not the hypocritical Pharisees. But are we really? Judith and I read a book a couple of summers ago um, by Carl Madeira. It's called Speaking of Jesus, The Art of Non-Invasion. Fantastic, transformational book, challenging things in there. But one thing he said in there, which I really remember, he asked the question, exactly that question, who do we think are the modern-day equivalents of the Pharisees? He proposed that it's very often us. It is the church the people who are religious, the people who think they've got it all, the people who think they've got it right and look down on others who haven't. We are often the ones who think we're somehow better than others. I'm, not, I'm pointing the finger at me and us and the church in general um, because we do the right things, because we don't do the things they do. When in fact, very often, it's a simply a privilege of our birth or our upbringing that we haven't had to be through. We don't understand their background and the problems they've been through that have led people to end up in the messes that they end up in. We need to remember that pride is the worst sin of all, and it was what caused Satan to fall from heaven because he wanted to be proud. He was proud and thought he was like God. We can be so judgmental and condemnatory, so easily forget the truth that there, but for the grace of God, go I. Something anyone who's worked with CAP will really learn from working with people that come into CAP is the terrible situations they have come from. They come from dysfunctional and abusive families, not all of them, but you know, broken marriages, physical and mental illness, drink and drugs, poverty and exhortation, being let down or even abused by the system that's supposed to help them. Now, sometimes, admittedly, it's some of it's their own fault, but they make mistakes. People make, we all make mistakes. They're poor, they're deceived, they're confused, they're hurting and they're desperate, and they so need to know the love and the forgiveness of God, as, as uh, Matthew did, as well as receive the practical help, very practical help we give them through the debt centre. We need to have that same compassion as Jesus did, which is also recorded in Matthew, where he says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd." Sorry, it's getting a bit challenging now. Next one, please. The danger of being nice. It is often so hard as nice, relatively wealthy Christians, and I'm not pointing the finger at anyone here, to have any real appreciation of the situations that others less fortunate than ourselves are in. One advantage, I've seen this, with people who get saved from a very difficult background and situation have, like that tax collector Matthew uh, in that story, they know what God has saved them from. And they are more thankful and and sold out for God than many people who've just come from a nice middle-class background. 
Yeah. Another thing, and uh, we can suffer from, we don't really know what our sin looks like to God. We think we're pretty much okay. But if we actually saw our sin as God saw it, we would never think that. Um, it can be very far from the truth. And we all know this passage in Luke this time where it says, um, the servant who knows the pastor's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I put there my story. I'm going to try and share this briefly because I've only got five minutes. Sorry. <laughs> I've shared a bit of this story before. Many of you weren't here. Um, I learned this lesson the hard way, the one I'm singing now, so I'm pointing the fingers at me here. I was brought up in a nice middle-class family, mostly happy childhood, a comfortable background. When I became a Christian age 20, I stopped swearing. I did a few other good things. I encountered the reality of God. There was absolutely no doubt but I didn't really understand repentance and the reality of my sin. I thought I was basically okay, had to change a bit, improve a bit. Not too bad. In 2010, that's um, 20 odd, 20, 30 years later, um, God changed my situation drastically. When I lost my job, I went through anxiety attacks, it became clinically depressed. Lasted over two years, my family, some of them sitting here, had to go through that. The reasons that happened, too complicated to go in now, but something that really took me down was realising how I had neglected that faith terribly over many of the previous years. I had fallen into subtle and hidden sinful ways. I had not read my Bible or prayed much, so much so that when I came to really needing God for my job situation, I couldn't hear him anymore. Um, I saw, and I still don't know if it's the enemy or God showed me this, but God allowed me to see it. I've been hypocritical in my faith, just like the Pharisees. I had talked the talk, but I'd not walked the walk. At one point, and this is how bad it got, I convinced I was even worse than Osama bin Laden or Hitler because I had received the knowledge of the truth and hadn't followed it, and they presumably hadn't. Um, yeah, I believed, you know, I, I got really ill, and I was definitely, um, you know, being demonically oppressed as well. But I thought I'd neglected my own faith so much that I'd rejected the, my God's free gift of salvation. And um, sometimes at this time, God showed me all the things in, in my life, and I couldn't see anything good. Everything, I'd, I'd done it for the wrong motives. I thought it was good, even things I thought were good. Um, and I really came to know the truth of that scripture that says, every inclination of man's heart is evil all the time. And at the same time, I became aware of the reality of hell. And what is more that I fully and completely deserve to go there? That's how bad it got. The scripture that says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God became an awful reality for me. Now I now know I'm a very different person that God allowed me to go through this experience because he wanted me to learn a lesson, one that I'll never forget. And in July 2012, I was fully and amazingly restored when I really encountered the love of God. I said at the beginning I discovered the reality, then I discovered repentance, and then I discovered the love of God that, that restored me almost in an instant. It, it's miraculous. And I have not been the same person again. My faults are still there, as uh, some of my family know. Um, but I will never forget that experience and what God showed me of my own sin. I am absolutely determined to never neglect and be hypocritical in my faith again. And, yeah... <laughs> This final quote from when I saw how evil it was, I really was in my heart, when I really saw it, God allowed me to see it, what my heart was like, not what my actions were like. I was walking the walk. You know, I looked, no, not, most people didn't really know what was going on in my head. Um, 
I resolved never to look down on another human being because Paul said this. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote half the New Testament. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And he genuinely said that. Okay, so what does this mean to us? And I just want to end with um, three calls, really. Three calls to everybody here and to myself. I want to first call, and this is the call of God. We get it from Matthew, but the call of God is to salvation. I just want to say that God is calling those to whom life has dealt a rubbish hand, those who desperately need God's help, those who know they've messed up, and they know they need the mercy and forgiveness of uh, Jesus, as, as Matthew did. So if there's anybody here... Um, just know that reality, and I'm going to pray at the end. If any of you want to come up to me or any of the leaders and just be pray because you're in that mess and you want to know that love of Jesus, then come and do it because Jesus is reaching out to you as he did to Matthew. Um, and I want to challenge you know, some other people in the way I was challenged. A call to renewal to those who've been hypocritical in their faith. That's a very broad range, okay? Maybe we've been going through the motions but not living the life. We've been given much, but done very little with it. We've thought we can manage nicely by keeping God at arm's length. We've talked the talk, but not walked the walk. Maybe we've fallen into hidden, subtle sins that people don't know about. Maybe we've become lukewarm and apathetic about our faith. So I just want to, you know, if anybody wants to receive prayer, because you know that's you, and that whatever it is, then get it prayed to. Get right with God. Commit to him to follow him with all your heart. And finally, there's a call to repentance for any of us, and I've done this, I know I've done this, Um, a call to repentance for anybody who's been proud in what they've done and thought it was somehow their achievement when actually it was God's and something to do with how they're born and, you know, circumstances. Proud of what they think they've achieved um, and as a result have looked down on others and judged others less fortunate than themselves. Look at the mess they've made, but I'm all right. So if anyone feels that they've done that, then please come and pray and ask God to forgive you for that. And God will restore you as he did Matthew, because God's love reaches out to everybody, whichever category, if any of those you're in. So shall we just pray? Father, just thank you for this um, amazing character, Matthew, who wrote his gospel, and yet we know so little about him. And yet, Lord, we can see from the way he has that he was a, hum- a humble man who knew what he'd been saved from, who knew how much you loved him and how you reached out to him. And he threw a massive party because he was so overjoyed with the salvation he refused for you. And Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here that needs to know that love of Jesus, that forgiveness, let them just know that right now. And Lord, if there's anybody who knows they've been you know, apathetic, lukewarm in their faith and needs to get restored and to really walk the, uh, yeah, walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Uh, Lord, just pray that they would get right with you right now. And if there's anybody, and that's probably all of us, who have looked down on others, Lord, we all need to repent whenever we think that somehow we're better than others because we haven't done what they've done, Lord. Lord, let us not be the modern-day Pharisees. Lord, just think how terribly Jesus spoke to those Pharisees, how he looks at hypocr- hypocrisy. Let us never be hypocrites, Lord, but to be loving uh, compassionate believers as Jesus was. In Jesus' name, amen.